Folks in Level Land, Texas, are worried about strange objects in their neighborhood. Sheriff Weir... I never got any money from you. This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. No, I can't believe we haven't covered this one yet. It's the Leveland, Texas sightings of 1957. So, November of 1957, the first few days of it, in fact, saw a number of sightings not only in Texas, but around the United States. In this episode, we're going to look at the Leveland, Texas events, and we might look at some others along the way, to a degree, but we're going to do this in as close to chronological order as we can. So I'm going to start with the newspaper reports, what regular people in Texas and around the world, thanks to wire service reporting, would have known. Then I'm going to move to the Air Force's investigation, the statements they took, the conclusions they came to. Next come the saucer fiends. What did APRO, Graybarker's Saucerian, others have to say about the cases and the Air Force's handling of it? Finally, who said what about it later? And how did it contradict what they said at the time? So let's go and see how we handle a classic sighting event that doesn't involve cults or blonde men in jumpsuits. Except for the part that does. I'll be talking a little more about that music at our midway break. So the sightings began on November 2nd, and I'm going to look at the reporting in a few papers, starting with the Fort Worth Star-Telegram of November 4th. Now, the morning edition had a headline asking, what is it, and is it ours? But the evening edition had a much better headline, Whatnik, sideline Sputnik, comma, Woofnik, as well as a more thorough story. Now, for those of you who may not be up on your space travel history. The Soviet Union had launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik, in October of 1957. And on November 3rd, the day between the first sightings and the first reporting of it on November 4th in the Fort Worth paper, they had launched Sputnik 2 with Laika, the dog, hence Woofnik. And Whatnik would be a nickname for whatever people saw in Texas for a while. So this was a fairly long story, so let's take a gander. What Nick first reported here has stolen the spotlight from both Sputnik and Woofnik, the dog-carrying moon. Whatnik has frightened a handful of persons nearly out of their wits and pricked the curiosity of hundreds of thousands. It has the mystery appeal of a science fiction thriller compared to Sputnik's weighty textbook-like qualities. People here seem more curious than alarmed. They ask first, whose is it? Next, what is it? Nobody seems to have the answers. People startled by what next Saturday night and early Sunday described it as a blazing orange thing that kills motors and douses lights of cars, hovers, takes off vertically, and flashes across the sky at blinding speed. Whatnik's antics drew telephone calls from New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, and many other parts of the nation Sunday. Phones jangled incessantly in the police department and sheriff's office. Each caller wanted the inside dope. What is it, they would ask, really? Several demanded, was it Sputnik? People here generally seem to presume it's ours. This is kind of a breathless sort of reporting, isn't it? You know, the, the phones are jangling incessantly. It's, it's constant commotion, which it really was for a couple days there. My favorite thing about this article is, is the comparison of people's reaction to Whatnik, the, the UFO sightings in the Leveland area, with the actual science of Sputnik. And they say, yeah, you know what? Sputnik's great. I mean, it's not great. It's the commies, right? But Sputnik's interesting. It's, it's you know, world-shaking news. But it's, it's kind of science-y. What about this, this weird light that's shutting off car engines everywhere? And then, of course, there's the question of what is this Sputnik? Is this something that's being done? Is this an effect of throwing a ball with a dog into space? Or was it, as some people said, as we heard in the article, American? Some American attempt to catch up with the Soviets in the space race. 
if it isn't, demanded Congressman Rutherford of Odessa in a telegram to the Pentagon, say so. One dyed-in-the-wool southerner figured it's bad news no matter what it is. If it's not from Russia or from Mars, he grumbled, it's bound to be from the north. Everyone who claimed to see Watnik at close range agreed that it was about 200 feet long, egg-shaped, and made a noise like thunder. Pedro Sacedo of Whiteface, who was driving west, first reported seeing Watnik four miles west of here. He called the police department at 10.50 p.m. Saturday and told, in a voice trembling with excitement, of the things passing directly over his car at an altitude of about 200 feet. When it got close to his car, he said, the car's lights went out and the motor died. The lights came back on as it sped away and he was able to start the motor again. Police took a look, saw nothing, and came back. What do you think? Policeman Bill White asked policeman A.J. Fowler. Oh, said Fowler, he's drunk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Deputy Fowler would soon learn that it wasn't just one possibly drunk person who didn't know what they were talking about who was seeing things. Deputy Fowler would find himself manning the phones all night, fielding calls from a variety of people who had seen very strange things. Then the phone rang again. Fowler, night radio dispatcher, answered it. The shaky voice of Jose Alvarez cried, I've just seen the darndest thing in a field I've ever seen. It'll cut your lights out and stop your motor. The thing, Alvarez said, was circling a cotton field just above the ground four miles east of here, near the Lubbock Highway. He was so excited, says Fowler, that when I asked what his address was, he just hung up the phone. Alvarez said that on one of its circles, the thing's light went out. It just disappeared. His car lights went back on. He started the motor and got out of there. I knew after the second call there was something to it, Fowler said. He sent a radio car out. A highway patrol car joined the search, and so did Sheriff Weir Clem. Then a man who identified himself as Jim Wheeler called and said he drove up on the Whatnick at the intersection of Highway 51 and a farm road eight miles north of here. It was just sitting there, all lit up, he said. I've never seen anything like it. You get close to it, and it shuts your light off and kills your motor. He said it looked like it was lit up with neon lights. The thing's light was so brilliant, no one could pick out any detail like doors or windows. Wheeler said he started to get out of his car. When he did, Watnick rose abruptly. At a height of about 200 feet, its lights went out. His car lights went back on. It was so bright, it lighted up the whole area, he said. Wheeler broke off without giving his address, too. People elsewhere begin seeing Watnick in the sky. I was answering the phone as fast as I could pick it up, said Fowler. A sheriff's unit, stationed at Anton, picked up the thing in the sky east of Witherall. Then Frank D. Williams of Kermit ran across Watnick four miles north of town. He called from a pay booth, explaining it was sitting at the intersection of the highway and a dirt road. Its light was going off and on, he said. Every time it came on, his car lights and motor would go off. He got out of his car. Then the thing rose swiftly to about 200 feet. Its lights went out and it disappeared when it took off, he said, like the others. It sounded like thunder. So we've got an object that is affecting cars, presumably the electrical system in some way. It's landed, or if not landed, is hovering close to the ground. Testimony would vary on that point from person to person. But this electrical cutting out, the, the cars stopping, I I think it was the actual pilot episode of the X-Files way back in the day that sort of had this go on. And it's, it's not an uncommon UFO thing, but I always associate it mostly with the Leveland story. And imagine poor Deputy Fowler sitting there thinking, oh, one, one drunk weirdo had a weird thing happen. And then he is sort of stuck on those phones all night trying to figure out exactly what's going on. A hectic night in Texas. Some of the police dispatchers in neighboring towns had fun monitoring Fowler's broadcasts early in the Whatnick search. Leveland, one would call gleefully, has something it can't catch and don't know what it is. Finally, though, when Fowler called for reserving the air for emergency messages only, the kidding ceased. Before the night was over, everyone involved was serious. Fourteen cars from Leveland, Hockley County, the State Highway Patrol, and the neighboring towns were on patrol. Many of the officers got a glimpse of Whatnick. Deputies Corbin, Arrington, and Barra didn't. I told him, grinned Corbin, that we gotta get some bifocals. Investigators from Reese Air Force Base joined the search, too. A base spokesman said radar there picked up no evidence of Whatnick. Fowler explained that landings were reported on pavement except in one case, on the dirt road, and he said rain fell before officers could inspect that place. So clearly something is going on. This is way too many people independently of each other having very similar experiences 
and reporting it again independently. There's no everybody getting together and saying, hey, we're all you know, flying saucer people. Let's all, I don't know, mistake whatever we're seeing for something very strange and all call the cops at once. Different ages, different occupations in the same general location. But yeah, something weird is going on here. And it wouldn't be long until the paper reported in this same article. This is all one article. It was a fairly long one that a saucer expert had weighed in on the situation. James Lee, Abilene astronomer who rushed here Sunday, does believe the Whatnik was a ship from outer space. He theorized that machines inside the craft disturbed the magnetic field of conductors and caused car engines and lights to fail. Regardless of what the thing is, or where it's from, or who it's scared, it accomplished one bit of good. It pushed the red moons out of the spotlight for a day. Well, whatever this is, at least it stopped us from worrying about the commies for a little while. Now we can go back to worrying about the commies. But we'll hear more about James Lee, the astronomer from Abilene, in a sort of sidebar article to this main piece in the Fort Worth uh, Star-Telegram. They had astronomer's opinion. Static charge could have stopped engines. The paper talked to Dan Tolman of Fort Worth, who said that static electricity is very high in dusty air and can do freakish tricks. I like that, a freakish trick. Back when he went to Texas Tech in the 1930s, he heard of a lot of static electric charges, shorting conditions of cars, and making them stop. But he didn't theorize that this was what was going on with the engine failures near Leveland, and he had no theories at all about this. This is basically a fluff piece about weird things that static electricity can do, especially with the whole dusty conditions thing when the conditions were damp and rainy. So it's one of these things where we have to give the readers some kind of science associated with the story, but we don't have a lot of great science to go on because we don't really know enough about what's going on with this particular situation. So what about James Lee, the astronomer from Abilene? On the same day, November 4th, the Lubbock Evening Journal had a little bit more information about him. James A. Lee, a medical supply salesman from Abilene and a member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, identified the object as a spacecraft from one of the neighboring planets. Lee, a director of Interplanetary Space Patrol, a West Texas organization which investigates flying saucers and similar objects, rushed to Leveland Sunday on hearing of the latest object. This makes him sound like more of an astronomer, and yet somehow less. Um, He's not just an astronomer. He's a flying saucer guy, and he's associated with NICAP, the big flying saucer outfit. And he wasn't the only NICAP expert who was going to weigh in on this. Flying saucer expert backs up reports. The chief of the unofficial flying saucer investigating committee said today reports of a spaceship visiting the Southwest seem to be bona fide. Donald E. Kehoe, a former Marine Corps major and now director of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, said that, quote, from all we've heard, end quote, the mysterious object said to have been sighted by at least nine persons in Texas and New Mexico was actually a spaceship. He said he was impressed particularly by reports that engines of automobiles died and their headlights went out when the objects passed near them. Quote, that's just the way an electromagnetic force field would operate, he said. Quote, this isn't the first time we've heard of such things happening. Kehoe, a former Marine pilot, is author of several books on flying saucers, including one entitled, Flying Saucers Are Real. Okay, so a couple of things here. One, the newspaper, and I don't know if this was prompted by something Kehoe said or how Kehoe or NICAP presented it, but it's the unofficial investigating committee on strange things in the sky, not one of several investigation groups looking at strange things in the sky, not even one of the two major large organizations examining strange things in the sky. The newspaper, probably prompted by Kehoe, is sort of setting NICAP up as, I don't know, I I don't want to say that they're doing it this way, but it kind of just sounded to me like, well, you know, the Air Force can't do a lot about this, so we're the unofficial group looking into this, which is very much in keeping with with Kehoe's very sort of self-important style. I also um, rolled my eyes very hard at Kehoe saying, you know, this is exactly how an electromagnetic force field would work. Really? Really? You think so, Donnie? You think so? No. Um, 
we're going to be doing a deep dive into NICAP at some point. I'd been planning it for a while back, but then I got wind of Jack Brewer's forthcoming book about the origins of NICAP and its possible connection to elements of the intelligence community, and I realized I should probably wait to read that. And having read it, I'm really glad I did because I would have ended up having to do an entirely different second episode on NICAP. And I think one episode on NICAP is more than anybody should do in the first place. So doing two is just ridiculous. So United Press, later United Press International, reported also on November 4th, and my version of the story is from the Odessa American newspaper, is headlined, Chicago Police See It, and indicates that strange things were being seen even that far afield from Leveland, Texas. In the Chicago suburbs, three policemen reported seeing an aerial phenomenon, quote, similar to one reported in West Texas. It's Elmwood Park, Illinois, and they said a bright cigar-shaped cylinder appeared in the early morning darkness. It was reddish-orange, and it sent chills up the spine of a fireman named Bob Voltz. It's an interesting story. I'm not sure this would have hit the national papers if the Leveland story with multiple, multiple witnesses hadn't been there as well. But we're going to see a lot of these stories coming out in the next week of news reporting. And there's a couple ways to look at it. There's the sort of very UFO way of saying this is clearly a UFO flap here in early November of 1957. There's a very cynical way to look at it, which is people thought it'd be cool to tell flying saucer stories. Or there's a fairly, I think, balanced way to look at it is you've got people with reputations policemen, firemen, other trained observers, as we might call them, maybe feeling more comfortable openly talking to the press or to authorities about what they had seen, that they had seen things. They might not have reported it without the Leveland sightings being in the news nationwide, thanks to United Press and Associated Press. That doesn't mean it's a copycat thing or some kind of attention-seeking behavior. So stories are coming out of the woodwork. Like this one from the San Antonio Express, November 5th, with the headline, Air Force Probes Mysterious Craft, U.S. Saucer Base Seen Near Clovis, Military Team to Quiz People Seeing Object. Added to the mystery today was an incredible story told by a Fort Worth man about a New Mexico hunting trip in 1953, in which he and two other persons stumbled onto a secret airfield and saw flying saucers rise like bats from a cave. Wait, what? A Fort Worth chemical engineer, Arthur P. Tickner, came out today with a story about flying saucers. Tickner said he and two other persons, whom he identified as Russell and Beth Freeman, happened onto a secret American airfield while on a hunting trip in the vicinity of Clovis in 1953. They were suddenly surrounded by U.S. soldiers carrying drawn weapons. Then, Tickner said, the first thing he knew, a flying object, quote, so enormous it blotted out the stars, end quote, took off. Quote, almost immediately, another went up, he said. There was no noise, only the swish of air. Tickner said the objects were so close, he could not tell whether they were oval or flat. The engineer said he was sure the objects seen in Leveland were American inventions. So I I did some looking, trying to find out more about this. And in June 2020, UFO researcher Kevin Randall mentioned this story on his blog, saying that he'd never heard of any follow-up and suspected that it only made the papers because of the Leveland sightings, which I kind of agree with. And I'm Kind of gratified that on this topic, at least, I know as much as Kevin Randall. Actually, I I know more. He said it appeared in papers on the 6th, but I found it on the 5th, so I don't know. I win. Also on the 5th, there was some interesting action at White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico, where, as you'll recall, Dan Fry had had some interesting experiences. The Army reported that there was a huge oval object, quote, nearly as bright as the sun, that two different patrols had seen Sunday hovering near bunkers used at White Sands Proving Grounds, which is where atomic bomb tests had been done. And it's a pretty high security place. Two different patrols of military police, 17 hours apart, had seen this brighter than the sun object near White Sands or at White Sands. Officials there said that it had nothing to do with any activity at the base. So don't worry, folks, we did not set off a nuke accidentally or anything like that. Now, there's no explanation as to what it might have been, but we know it wasn't anything to do with White Sands, which I don't know if that would have made people in 1957 who lived in that region 
feel better or feel worse about it. So on the 6th, the newspaper in Abilene had a bit more on James Lee, the NICAP astronomer, with a, a just a classic headline. Did Abilinians talk bring Leveland saucer? And the article begins with a sort of, you know, proclamation by Lee about the skeptical explanations of what people were seeing. We are referring to the statement of Dr. Donald Menzel of Harvard College Observatory. His remarks to the effect that the Texas bright lights are nothing more than mirages, to say the least, ridiculous and not based on known facts. The days of the skeptics are numbered, and they had better find a good place to hide away, for even the entire population of our large cities will see these ships as they come in from outer space. They will soon come in large numbers for all to see, and the skeptics will not have a leg left to stand on. There is no need for alarm over the situation at this time. This statement, given Wednesday morning to one of the nation's newswire services, is signed Jim Lee, Director, Interplanetary Space Patrol. Just a reminder, Mr. Lee was also representing himself as, one, an astronomer, and two, a representative of NICAP. And it's things like this that sort of make me chuckle at the sort of vision we have of NICAP of being the very straight-laced, almost, you know, official-like bureaucratic organization that was just to the left of skeptical on a lot of UFO topics. I think that describes... Kehoe during his directorship and, and what I think his vision was, but NICAP was a big enough organization that it had people like Jim Lee running around saying, these spacecraft will soon appear in many, many large cities. Let's continue looking at this story about Lee. Lee says these aerial phenomenon are often seen where Lee and others who believe like himself are scheduled to speak on unidentified flying objects, visitors from outer space, and unknown beings who direct the operation of the lights in the sky with a plan and a purpose. Why should these beings make the lights appear near where they are to be discussed? It's a matter of conditioning the minds of the people, Lee says. Remember, I don't buy all these stories. That's the problem. We get took in quite often. But, says Lee, where there are qualified observers such as newsmen, law enforcement, officers, or reports confirmed by ship or airplane radar, he believes. So he's pretty careful about what reports he accepts and what reports he doesn't. However, he also believes that him showing up to speak about flying saucers will summon the saucers because that's all part of a conditioning process. This really is all over the place in terms of critical thinking. If Lee's contention that the mysterious lights are being used to condition the people of the world to the appearance of things from outer space, Abilene may see the lights next Monday night. That's the next meeting date for the Interplanetary Space Patrol, a group of 100 amateur radio operators who tune together around the world each Monday night at 9 p.m. and talk about the space visitors. This Monday is the night when Lee's special guest will be Ray Stanford of Corpus Christi, a 19-year-old man who spotted a flying saucer on Padre Island off Texas's Gulf Coast in 1954. We'll probably do a Ray Stanford episode at some point. Maybe. So we're getting to the end of this week of national coverage of the Leveland sightings. And on November 7th, 1957, Bob Pierpoint of CBS News had a report on the situation on the radio, and you heard a little bit of it at the very beginning of the show. But here is the entire thing, which is really not as long as you'd think it would be. Folks in Level Land, Texas are worried about strange objects in their neighborhood. Sheriff Weir Clem says he has received several reports of a strange egg-shaped object about 200 feet long landing on farms and highways last night in the vicinity of Level Land. Sheriff Clem says he even himself got a glimpse of the thing which somehow turned off lights and auto engines when it came near. The sheriff says that lights and engines worked fine again after the thing went away. This is Bob Pierpoint in Washington. And then, after that five, six days of coverage, reporting drops off. And the next major story in newspapers was about the Air Force's investigation and their conclusions. So let's just move to that part of the story, which is something we'll do after our break. We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about the Leveland event. So be sure to get those to us in the comments under this episode on the website, on social media, or through email. Then, on the next regular episode, we head to Malaysia. Yes, you heard correctly. Malaysia. 
Some timely announcements if you're listening to this soon after release. First, the music that you've heard on this episode is called Night Shift by the Moonrock Orchestra. And it's from a new show called They Came to Rock, which is premiering in Nashville October 28th and 29th. It's sort of a blend of music, UFO history, and spectacle. And I provided some background historical information for the creators. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You can check it out at theycametorock.com. And I appreciate them letting me use some of the song from the show about the Leveland incident. Speaking of Nashville, a week from the release date of this episode, I'll be giving one of the presentations at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be held both in person in Nashville and online uh, everywhere, October 15th through 17th. I'm speaking on that Friday evening, the 15th, about saucer felons or saucer swindlers, which may be a better a better sort of title. Um, you know one of them. We've encountered him uh, once so far, and the other one is a new topic for me. You can check it out at strangerealitiesconference.com. You can also listen to the promo for the show that will be at the end of this episode. You can check out past episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. Thanks for all the support we've received over the years. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life and Facebook, I believe. Yeah, it's Saucer Life on Facebook. And you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, Department A, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. Let's get back to Texas. So the Air Force investigation of the Leveland sightings was part of Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force's more public-facing attempt to explain, or in some cases to explain away, UFO sightings during the 1950s and 1960s. At this time, it was under the direction of Captain George Gregory. The Blue Book file is huge, so let's look at some specific things, witness statements that Air Force personnel collected, and how the Air Force characterized the witnesses, other aspects that they investigated, and the conclusions they came to. Names are redacted in the report, but from some other sources, we can figure out some of them. Maybe not others, and maybe it doesn't really matter who the names are. The first report is from Newell Wright, age 19. He's a student at Texas Technological College in Lubbock. According to the file, his education level is a second semester freshman. And here is his statement. I was driving home from Lubbock and State Highway 116 at approximately 12 p.m. when the amp meter on my car jumped to complete discharge, then it returned to normal, and my motor started cutting out like it was out of gas. After it had quit running, my lights went out. I got out of my car and tried in vain to find the trouble. When I found nothing, I closed the hood and looked for a passing motorist to obtain help. It was at this time that I saw the object. I got back into my car and tried to start it, but to no avail. After that, I did nothing but stare at the object until it disappeared about five minutes later. I then resumed trying to start my car and succeeded with no more trouble than under normal circumstances. I then proceeded home very slowly and told no one of this sighting until my parents returned home from a weekend trip to Hobbs, New Mexico, for fear of public ridicule. They did convince me that I should report this, and did so to the sheriff around 1.30 p.m. Sunday, November 3rd. So, the reliability summary in the Air Force report says the source seemed to be very sincere about his sighting. He was appalled, that's the word they used, appalled at the publicity, and was serious to have the sighting resolved. Quote, he was unhesitating in his replies. However, during the course of further questioning, he admitted uncertainty in some of his answers. The source can be considered usually reliable. And I think one of the reasons that they thought he was reliable is the final statement in this summary. Source had no opinion concerning the possible cause of the sighting. He's not trying to say, this is a flying saucer. I think it was Sputnik. Maybe it's one of our satellites that we're trying to launch. He didn't say anything like that. Very straightforward. This is what I saw. Didn't want to tell anybody because, you know, it's in the papers and people are being weird. But my mom and dad said I should. Now, the next statement is from Pedro Sacedo, who's name was in the papers is one of the one of the names largely or often identified with this uh, this sighting here's what he had to say to whom it may concern on the date of november 2nd 1957 i was traveling north and west on route 116 driving my truck at about four miles out of leveland i saw a big flame to my right front then i thought it was a lightning 
but when this object had reached my position, it was different because it put my truck motor out and lights. Then I stopped, got out, and took a look, but it was so rapid and quite some heat that I had to hit the ground. It also had three colors, yellow, white, and it looked like a torpedo, about 200 feet long, moving at about 600 to 800 miles an hour. The Blue Book Report gives Mr. Sacedo's address as level in Texas, age is 30, occupation barber, education grade school. As far as reliability goes, source appeared to be of, it's redacted, we stated his occupation was a barber. However, Sheriff Clem stated that the source was a part-time farm laborer, dishwasher, harbor worker, etc. Source had no concept of direction and was conflicting in his answers. Source can be considered redacted. So I'm not sure what their summary of what they considered the source to be was, although generally unreliable is the impression given. The next statement is from a redacted source from Loveland, Texas, age 43, occupation redacted, qualification officers school of Texas. And this was his report of the sighting as summarized by the Blue Book investigators. At 0130 CST, November 3rd, 1957, Source was driving his car looking for objects that had been reported in the area. Source was traveling south on the Oklahoma Flat Road at 20 miles per hour when he saw, quote, just a streak of light one time, end quote. This light had a reddish glow and moved from south to west in two seconds. Source estimated the object to be 800 feet at its longest dimension and estimated the object to be 400 yards away from his point of observation. Source had no opinion as to the possible cause of the sighting. So reliability, Source, I'm just going to quote, Source impressed the investigator as being of average intelligence. He was eager to cooperate in resolving the sighting and frequently asked the investigator for advice on releases to the press. He was rather pleased with the sudden importance of his county. Source can be considered fairly reliable. This is clearly Sheriff Clem. Um, Otherwise, why redact the occupation? His qualification is, you know, police school, and he's asking for advice on dealing with the press. This is... This is Sheriff Clem's report. The next is from a Texas Highway Patrolman, 24 years old, education high school, qualifications. He attended patrol school and jet aircraft school, so probably a veteran, and he's considered usually reliable. Was driving south on the unmarked roadway known as Oklahoma Flats Highway and was attempting to search for an unidentified object reported to the Loveland Police Department. When I saw a strange-looking flash which looked to be down the roadway approximately a mile to a mile and a half, The flash went from east to west and appeared to be close to the ground. The flash lasted only a fraction of a second and was red to orange-red in color. This flash occurred approximately 1.15 a.m. on the morning of November 3, 1957. A very straightforward report, a very sort of unflashy report. We're seeing colors of um, red and red-orange, red to red-orange. Keep that in mind. Just sort of pin that to the back of your of your head there. So next, I wanted to give you an example of how the source's description of sighting as sort of summarized by the Air Force could differ slightly, not always a lot, but slightly, from what the statement actually was from the source. This source is 28 years old. He is an aeromedical technician for the Air Force. He's got some education. He's a technical sergeant as far as his uh, his enlisted sort of rating is this is his actual statement the information is not given to mislead anyone and is of my own observance on the night of 2nd november 1957 at approximately 2310 my wife two children and myself departed my father's home in sudan texas at about 2330 in the vicinity of anton texas my wife and i noted occasional lightning and at the same time static on our radio At approximately 2350 or 2355, I turned south at Shallow Water, Texas on State Farm Road 1073. In just a few minutes later, this bolt of lightning occurred to our southwest. At the same, my radio and car lights went out for approximately one to three seconds, then came back on. My wife and I remarked that was certainly a strong bolt of lightning to put out our lights and radio. We didn't think anything about this until we heard the radio report Sunday night of this phenomenon. With its location and the time factor, certainly coincides with this flash of lightning that my wife and I observed. And here is the Air Force summary of that statement. At 0235 CST, Source and his wife were driving home on Texas Farm Road 1073, about two miles south of Shallow Water, Texas, when he saw a flash of light visible for approximately three seconds. 
The flash was seen in the southwest and was white-orange in color. At this time, the lights and radio in Source's car went out for approximately one to three seconds. Source and his wife remarked then that it was, quote, certainly a strong bolt of lightning to put out our lights and radio, end quote. Source stated that the weather at the time of the sighting was misty, with scattered clouds and a light breeze. Keeping track of those colors? Sort of the reddish end of the spectrum again, wasn't it? Here's a statement from a witness from Whiteface, Texas, age 52. He works for a drilling company, high school education. Let's see what he has to say. While driving north, about seven miles north of Sundown, Texas, I saw a light about the size of a basketball, about 200 or more feet above ground, traveling from east to west. I stopped by side of road with my wife and we watched the object, a bright red light giving off a glow. It apparently stopped and began swinging from north to south about a quarter mile distant while getting higher slowly and and fire or sparks, similar to a cutting torch cutting iron, scraping out with visible smoke. An object above it seemed to hold up the light on a cable or hose appearing link between the light and the balloon object above it. It continued swinging north to south. Three or four minutes, and then at a fast rate of speed, it went straight up into the clouds and disappeared, or the light went out. So, the reliability source appeared to be of redacted. He was hesitant about details and constantly added details of the description of the object. Source can be considered redacted. Now, this source appeared to be of redacted is remarkably similar to Mr. Sacedo's description of source appeared to be of redacted and Mr. Sacedo's ethnicity. I mean, if I'm inferring from his name that he is, he was Hispanic newspaper reports report that another witness, a truck driver, maybe from a drilling company was African-American. I'm thinking the source appeared to be of redacted is the air force, you know, sort of specifying ethnic or racial minorities in their reports. And then later for public consumption, like, yeah, we better not do that, especially since there seems to be a pattern of us sort of, I don't know, equating or specifying that the least reliable witnesses were the ones who weren't white. Now, there were some other supplemental investigative efforts that were made by Captain Gregory and Project Blue Book, in addition to collecting witness statements of the actual sightings themselves. They verified that there was no air traffic in the area. They checked that there were no balloon operations in the area. They interviewed a math and astronomy professor at Texas Tech who informed them that the amount of rain in the area and the condition of the crops could have created a phenomenon similar to St. Elmo's fire, that there was the possibility of burning excess gas from nearby oil operation, that that those flames could have reflected off of the low clouds. There's a possibility of lightning stalling a car and extinguishing the lights. However, you know, the possibility decreases as the number of such incidents increase. So basically, yeah, it could happen, but for it to happen a number of times on the same night is unlikely. They checked with local Reese Air Force Base and the Weather Bureau at Lubbock and revealed the following weather conditions. A shallow temperature inversion existed. It was completely overcast with a 400-foot ceiling and visibility at three miles. Winds were light and variable. There was light drizzle or rain throughout the period. So not a lot of rain. Clouds were low. Um, not, Not thunderstorm weather, not big lightning weather. They did check with oil companies and a limited amount of excess gas was being burned. Not much. There were no downed power lines at the time. And witnesses reported in newspaper accounts as having observed an object had either disappeared or returned to their homes, leaving no forwarding address. So basically, there are probably more witnesses out there, but we could not find them. Blue Book's scientific advisor, J. Allen Hynek, had this to say about the weather and the effects on what people might have seen. The phenomena reported seen causally interlocked with the meteorological conditions prevailing at the time, viz. low ceiling, fog, mist, light rain, and periodic lightning flashes. Our knowledge of such well-attested phenomena as ball lightning and related electrical discharges is not sufficient to pinpoint the exact cause of the present sighting, but there is no need to hypothesize spacecraft, etc. in this matter, since lightning flashes alone in a foggy, low-ceiling, nocturnal meteorological setting is sufficient to produce weird effects, especially to imaginative minds. Weather does weird stuff. People might have seen weird stuff. 
Weird stuff caused by weird electrical weather phenomenon does not necessarily mean spaceships. There's a big jump being made there. So he also addresses the um, situation about the cars, about the, the electrical effects on vehicles. Coming now to the phenomena of motor stoppage, etc. This was reported in three cases. One case momentary, loud noise on radio and momentary flutter of car light, typical of electrical storms. The other two cases indicated definite stoppage. Might it not be possible, if indeed these occurrences were causally connected with the phenomenon reported, rather than ascribable to coincidence? After all, two car engines stopping one hour apart in a lightning storm with high humidity does not strain coincidence. To ascribe stopping to sudden deposition of moisture on distributor parts, especially if moisture condensation nuclei were enhanced by increased atmospheric ionization. J. Allen Hynek. I like this because it's it's kind of a, I don't know if I'd call it a passionate defense, but it's kind of a, a defense of the idea that just because a completely explainable natural phenomenon or occurrence or explanation for these things isn't likely or isn't common, that it's impossible and people need to jump, you know, consequently to extraterrestrial explanations like Jim Lee from Abilene. So based on Hynek's sort of summary there and the other investigations done and the witnesses, the Air Force, Captain Gregory, issued some conclusions. Analysts' comments or conclusions? Ball lightning. One, in the opinion of the undersigned, after careful search, study, and consideration of all data available, the phenomenon was undoubtedly related to the meteorological conditions that existed in the area at the time. Fog, light rain, mist, very low ceiling, and lightning discharges. The latter were definitely established through the results of numerous investigative reports. Two, possibly contributing to the phenomenon were the oil fires that were also burning in the vicinity. An oil-saturated mist is capable of producing a fluorescent glow, as described, upon excitation from a lightning discharge. 3. In summation, all of the above were conducive to a ball lightning manifestation, a field of which very little is known by admission of writers and authorities themselves. 4. All are in agreement, however, of the following, which, significantly, are the almost exact characteristics and descriptions of the Leveland phenomena. A. Ball lightning can take many unusual or weird spherical or elliptical shapes. B. It is predominantly brilliant blue or bluish-white in color. C. It can float slowly some distance above the ground. 5. The close proximity of ball lightning or lightning discharges is capable of ionizing the air that may, in turn, affect moisture-laden ignition components of a motor vehicle. Signed, Captain George T. Gregory, 3rd January, 1958. Bluish-white light. Yes, we remember that from the number of eyewitness accounts talking about a red or reddish-orange light, right? So, that was the official explanation from Captain Gregory. And for the purposes of the Air Force, going forward, the case would be immortalized in a brief summary on a file card. A summary that underscores the Air Force's sometimes official irritation with the entire UFO narrative. This case triggered off more than 300 similarly described reports within a six-day period because of the nationwide publicity and sensationalism given by the press, radio, and TV. Oval or round-shaped object, generally bluish-white or greenish-white in color. The size and maneuvers of the object varied with different observers, which ranged from the size of a basketball to 800 feet in length, although the majority reported that the object hovered close to the ground. Most of the observers stated that the object affected or stopped their car's ignition. Duration of sightings ranged from two seconds to four minutes. Significant to note that all but one observer mentioned lightning or lightning flashes and the existence of rain or mist in the area. And an even briefer explanation. After very extensive checks and detailed investigations by the Air Force and with complete collaboration with both Air Force and non-governmental scientists, it was concluded that the sighting was due to a very rare phenomena, ball lightning. And, you know, not to be snarky, but it was the even more rare, almost unheard of, red ball lightning. As you can imagine, saucer fans were not entirely thrilled with this. So we're going to look at some of the reaction, not comprehensively, because that's that's a lot. And they all say the same sort of thing. This was a, a shoddy 
investigation by the Air Force. We'll start with APRO, since it's my favorite of the old-time saucer organizations. Actually, it's my favorite of all the saucer organizations. In their November 1957, they sort of headlined the whole thing with the New Mexico story. And, and Leveland was sort of the initiating event to a series of sightings that they really, they honestly really focused on the New Mexico stuff, especially the White Sands stuff. This is how they began their report. All seemed to agree that this something was about 200 feet long, shaped like an elongated egg or ellipsoid, and lit up like it was on fire. The glow, however, according to the description, seemed to resemble neon light. All observers agreed that the object seemed to be at about 200 feet altitude, and when it approached the observers, their car engines stopped and headlights went out. Now, this ignores some of the variations in the story, saying all the observers agreed is maybe not entirely accurate, and estimations of height at hundreds of feet in the air, that's kind of difficult to do for untrained observers. But what I like about this little snippet from APRO is, is we're seeing kind of the beginning of a, a uniform level end narrative. So the same month, Gray Barker's Caesarian Bulletin, uh, dated November 18th, 1957, led with this. Um, I was going to say a little more lurid, but it's, it's really not. Actually, I, I think it probably summed up the feelings of saucer fanatics quite well. Saucer scare hits nation. For months, saucer enthusiasts had hoped for a major incident which would arouse public interest in the mystery, a situation which might break the brass curtain they felt hid U.S. Air Force secrets. Finally, it looked as if such a thing might indeed be happening. It's disclosure, folks. It's coming. This case is so big that they can't possibly ignore the extraterrestrial nature of the UFOs now. How many times have we heard it? How many more times will we hear it? I say at least two, just a guess. So he covered not only the Leveland sighting, but also other sightings during the period, including some that didn't get a huge amount of press elsewhere. And one in particular that doesn't actually really involve a sighting and is only sort of tangentially connected. And this, this the inclusion of this seems a little odd to me. It may have had nothing to do with saucers, but in Antarctica, the Navy was having trouble with engine failures. First, a Navy version of a two-engine DC-3 lost the use of one engine on November 6th, made an emergency landing. Earlier, a two-engine Neptune had been carrying 10 persons on a flight to deliver men to the South Pole when one engine went bad during a landing on October 26th. The Air Force continued to have trouble with its four-engine Globemasters, the backbone of U.S. aerial supply in Antarctica, and in view of the current accounts of auto-ignition failures, the trouble was significantly located in the generators in seven out of ten cases. Airplanes have mechanical trouble at the South Pole. It's news, um, especially those numbers, but apart from electrical issues with engines, I don't really see a connection. And probably, you know, Barker didn't either. He had, he had you know, space to fill, right? And then he covers a story that you may be familiar with. If you're not, check the links in the show notes. And this was also, at the time, if not in later decades, considered part of this very bizarre constellation of saucer events. And when I first learned about this incident, I did not connect it to Leveland at all. And the inevitable would come. Accounts of having met the space people themselves. The prize tale was that related by Reinhold Schmidt, grain dealer of California, who had a run-in with German-speaking space people near Kearney, Nebraska. That's right. Reinhold Schmidt, our favorite saucer felon. Well, maybe not our favorite. There's going to be another one that I'm going to be talking about at Strange Realities that we'll cover on the show not long afterward. But yeah, Reinhold Schmidt. It's pretty interesting. We'll, we'll come back to, to sort of other saucer people's reaction to the Reinhold Schmidt story or, or one saucer person's reaction to it. NICAP, predictably, claimed there was an Air Force cover-up. And actually, I find their newsletter coverage of this pretty boring. However, NICAP's file on Leveland, which I'll include a link to in the, in the show notes, includes clippings and copies of things that have been published in other publications that were actually pretty interesting, engaging the reaction of the saucer world to these events. CSI, which I believe stood for Civilian Saucer Investigation, had a really good article that began this way. USAF versus UFO, how the Air Force slew the flying saucer dragons. 
In the first week of November 1957, the front pages of American newspapers were a swarm with the doings of what a hundred facetious editors were unanimously inspired to call Whatniks, nothing more or less than flying saucers under a new and even more grotesque name. On November 7th, practically every paper in the country carried a story declaring that, quote, Air Force says no evidence for flying saucers ever found, end quote. In the second week of November, all the Whatniks abruptly disappeared, if not from the skies, at least from the news columns. And on the 16th, the press solemnly recorded that the U.S. Air Force had, quote, refuted the flying saucer tales, end quote, and that was that. Until the next time. In addition to the derisive attitude of the media, for this author, the ball lightning slash St. Elmo's fire explanation made almost no sense. One wonders what were the feelings of the local Weather Bureau officials on reading this evaluation. It was specifically stated in the Leveland Sun News of November 5th that, quote, weathermen said they could not explain away the sightings. There were no thunderstorms in the area, and they scoffed at St. Elmo's light, end quote. No further comment is necessary. But just for the record, it should also be pointed out that the anonymous author of the evaluation was evidently unaware that St. Elmo's fire, brush electrical discharge, is never red in color, and that it is always attached to ground objects and cannot rise in the air, and that it is an entirely different phenomenon from ball lightning. Basically, the biggest problem with the Air Force's explanation is they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the phenomenon to which they're attributing these sightings. And it, it always, to me, has been the the silliest thing. I think, going out on a limb here, I think the Michigan swamp gas explanation is probably a little more, at least it would have existed where Hynek said it existed in the 60s. We're going to have an episode on that in the future at some point, too. Probably. Probably should. Finally, from this author, and most interesting to me, they went through the Air Force explanations of various other sightings at the time and, and found them all wanting. But the author had special comment on the Kearney, Nebraska spaceship case, which the Air Force had smartly dismissed as a hoax from our unreliable witness named Reinhold Schmidt. There seems to be little doubt that the Air Force has succeeded in including one correct evaluation among its five. The Schmidt story is doubtless to be put in the class of fictitious contact claims, though it lacks the messianic flavor usually associated with such claims. I like this. I like this line of reasoning. Even though the Air Force is probably right about Reinhold Schmidt's story being a lie, being a hoax, including it in their roundup of dismissals of the sightings surrounding Leveland and you know that period of time, is sort of a calculated move to lump all UFO sightings in the first week of November in with the, you know, lying contactee from Nebraska. That's actually probably, I think, a pretty shrewd uh, summary of what the Air Force is trying to do. In later years, UFO experts, including Dr. James McDonald and Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who had worked for Blue Book at the time, had ongoing concerns about the Air Force's handling of the case. In 1966, McDonald wrote to, it says, Dear Dick, on the letter, I assume that's Richard Hall of NICAP, and he wanted the letter included in NICAP's file on Leveland. McDonald had been in contact with the editor of the newspaper that had originally reported about weather conditions in Leveland at the time, and he learned some other things about the Air Force's handling of the investigation and the experiences of one particular person on the ground. Morris was emphatic that the early hours of November 3rd were clear or nearly clear. He himself, when he heard the reports, went out to have a look at the roads. He said he couldn't understand why the Air Force would say that there were storms since there were Air Force investigators the following day. Sheriff Weir Clem took a lot of guying, he said. Hence, he did not report for some time a subsequent sighting of a somewhat similar object. Morris will try to get me a clipping on it and is not sure whether it was one or two years back. Weir had been out investigating a wreck and was heading back, nighttime. Saw two bright red flashing lights ahead and thought it was another wreck. The lights started moving away from him before he reached the spot, so his next thought was that it must be an ambulance. Chased it for ten miles straight down a road. Then, at a turn in the road, the lights just kept going right on ahead. After lifting just a little bit and went out and let down in a pasture area. So Weir went by some side road to get a closer look, and as he neared it, the object went straight up in the air. It was a solid object, more or less cigar-shaped, with very bright red lights on it. Later, 
it came back down and lit in the pasture again. That rough account can't be trusted for details, so if I get a clipping, I'll send a copy. I asked Morris what Clem thinks these objects are. Some kind of flying machines. So the sheriff had had a later sighting, but didn't talk about it because of how he was treated by the Air Force initially. J. Allen Hynek, in his 1977 book about his UFO investigations, also talked about this case, and particularly the way that his explanations were used, or possibly misused, or possibly shouldn't have been made at all. What was needed at the time was swift reaction by Blue Book in a serious, thorough investigation. Captain Gregory, then head of Blue Book, did call me by phone, but at that time, as the person directly responsible for the tracking of the new Russian satellite, I was on a virtual around-the-clock duty and was unable to give it any attention whatever. I am not proud today that I hastily concurred in Captain Gregory's evaluation as ball lightning on the basis of information that an electrical storm had been in progress in the Leveland area at the time. This was shown not to be the case. Observers reported overcast and mist, but no lightning. Besides, had I given it any thought whatever, I would soon have recognized the absence of any evidence that ball lightning can stop cars and put out headlights. I can just imagine Heineck in 1957, in November, being asked about this UFO thing and this ball lightning explanation. He's just like, whatever, the, the Soviets have a dog up there. You know, I've got bigger things to worry about. So, like I said earlier, the, the Leveland sighting is, is, not, is not something that, you know, I usually sort of look at. I, I should do more of it. Uh, regular sort of historical sightings that are significant, especially for, for establishing ongoing narratives about, uh, about things such as bad Air Force explanations, engines cutting out and things like that. These are important stories. They're, they're as important as the contactees. I know I'm the only one who would who'd maybe sort of be like, I guess I admit that like actual sightings by groups of people are, that's almost as important as a grain dealer who says he met some aliens with German accents. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm backwards in a lot of ways. What I think happened in Leveland is that people saw something very strange. I don't know if it was extraterrestrial. I don't know any reason why it would be necessarily. I'm pretty sure it wasn't ball lightning. And I'm pretty sure the explanation is not an Air Force cover-up of the aliens as much as it is that the Air Force in 1957, as it had been in 1947, and as it really would be by 1967, really doesn't want to deal with people's UFO stories. And so whatever they can do to make these stories go away, to make the press stop sending them reporters with questions, and to make people stop hassling them, is to explain it and count on the fact that, for the time being at least, the press and most of the public, unless they're really married to the whole UFO thing, are going to accept what the Air Force says. If the Air Force says it's a weather balloon, it's a weather balloon. If the Air Force says it's ball lightning, it's ball lightning. If the Air Force says it's swamp gas, well, that's a different story that we'll get to at some point in the future. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address them on our episode next week. Check out theycametorock.com for more about the music that you heard on this episode, and check out strangerealitiesconference.com for information about my upcoming appearance next week and a bunch of others a short promo will air after this episode concludes and if you look at our previous episode our feedback episode about disclosure in the 90s you will hear an interview with me and the guys from conspiranormal where they go through the entire lineup it's already gotten at least some people who've contacted me off the fence to order their online ticket to the conference so it's going to be outstanding I'm excited about it because it's my first event like this in a long time for some well-known global reasons. So check it out. Next time, Malaysia. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. And just explain anything you can't understand as ball lightning. It'll work. Oh, 
2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Ren Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealBaseConference.com. It's going to be amazing. <laughs>